0: Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 71 The Whirlwind. Last time, the Great War had come to an ugly end. The world hated the Germans, and those very same Germans started turning on each other. It didn't help that they were given false information. During a dinner one night, soon after the shooting was over, General Ludendorff was trying to explain to a British general that things could have worked out differently if the German army had been truly supported by the civilians within the government. The British officer then interrupted by saying something to the effect, do you mean to say, General, that you were stabbed in the back? This encapsulating of what he had been trying to get across startled Ludendorff. Yes, That's it exactly. We were stabbed in the back, was his reply. This exchange helped the defeated Ludendorff, who, it will be remembered, was begging Wilhelm to stop the fighting, to save face. Yet, it simply wasn't true. Nevertheless, Hindenburg, his equally panicked colleague during the last few days of the war, helped to spread the false rumor. As the German army still had a place in the people's hearts, This belief gave the people another reason to hate the civilians inside the government, who had promised victory but delivered defeat and the death of 1.7 million German men. Within a short time after the war, the civilians who signed the peace terms were dubbed the November Criminals throughout Germany. This term would be used as a stepping stone that many rising political parties including a future Nazi party throughout Germany, used to attempt to bring revolution to the country. But enough about Berlin, the German people, and the Kaiser's dynasty. There were more important issues. On November 8th, when the German commission left to sign the peace terms, being told which roads to take so as to not get killed on the way, Berlin cut off all payments and suspended all contracts with the concern forthwith. Gustav was suddenly in the position of having to tell his wife, the true owner of Krupp, that he had lost 432 million marks in profit. What's more, there were some 150,000 Kruppeneer workers, of which 105,000 had families, that depended on their pay from the concern. Gustav, always one to think of turning to others above him for answers, though that would not always be the case, as we will soon see, wrote to those in authority in Berlin, asking what he should do. The answer, and it was that, and not just a general reply, and it showed Gustav that the politicians there knew nothing of business, was to just keep on paying his workers. There, no pain, all gain. The head Krupp didn't have time to teach Economics 101 to his superiors, that workers made goods. The goods were sold. The sales from those goods were used to pay the workers' salaries and to buy from other businesses, thus supporting them and paying their workers. So Gustav took the unusual route of deciding things for himself. The next day, November 9th, when the workers showed up on time to get to work, they found chains on all the doors. There was no way to enter the factories, production buildings, or the large hammer houses. Essen had become silent. It would also become lit with sunshine as well. For years the factories had produced smoke, or smog, and blocked out the sun. But on that November ninth afternoon, with the means of production, or rather smoke making, stopped, a quick storm was enough to blow it all away. The sun shone down on Essen for the first time in many, many years. As the workers suddenly had nothing to do and always looked to a Krupp for leadership, the next day many thousands of them made their way to the new administrative building. Gustav did not send anyone out to talk to them, though he did have spies within their numbers to report on any serious trouble. So, the only speeches made that day came from representatives of the Social Democratic Party, or those further to the political left. But it wasn't these people that concerned Gustav Krupp. It was the hundreds of thousands of soldiers coming back, that perceived themselves to be let down by those of means, or, in other words, stabbed in the back, and were, besides, professional killers, used to being organized. Communist groups also started popping up within Essen, as well as around most of Germany. The great Alfred Krupp would have been turning in his grave, but as they say, life is for the living. As the German people were about to learn, later it would be the rest of the world, many Germans were angry. They blamed anyone of position or who stood out. But to say that they were Angry is a monumental understatement. They seethe with murderous rage. Not all of them, but enough. During the first two years after the Great War, there were at least 354 political murders within Germany. Of the many factions now vying for power, control, or influence, one side disagreed with another, as was the norm, but instead of just agreeing to disagree as was the norm, some chose to remove said rival by murder. This became the new norm. The police killed those they disagreed with, but didn't bother to apprehend themselves afterwards. Soldiers and ex-soldiers did the same, sometimes under orders from a superior, sometimes not. Everything was now do or die, kill or be killed. The stakes couldn't be higher, so... Neither could the means. And yet, those lessons, buried deep into everyone's psyche from childhood, remained. There were still authority figures, and though their lives were now in danger, they were still seen as authoritative. This was certainly true for Gustav, and he capitalized on it. Though his servants had been armed, and a red flag had been set up to always be ready to be hoisted over the Villa Hugel, In case of a Red Revolution, Gustav chose to walk through the streets of his works. The men just watched him. They didn't cheer, but they didn't kill him either. Entering and leaving shops, Gustav certainly gave many men that day a chance to assault him. But they did not. Those Germans respected authority, and humans still admire courage, as long as it does not get one killed. After indirectly staring down those around him, Gustav then walked to the main administrative building. Calling together the Vorstand, the board, he announced that he had come to a decision. For all of those who were employed by Krupps on August first, 1914, they would continue to be employed. All the others, some 70,000, in these various factories alone would be let go. One of the board members, after his shock, found his voice and started offering up a line of thought that went like this. Uh, it's probably not a good idea to fire 70,000 men all at once, especially with no army to protect the assets. But Gustav cut him off. Yes, he knew this and already had a solution prepared. Those to be let go would receive two additional weeks of pay and a one-way train ticket, if they left by November 18th. For a man who tried not to have an original thought until late in life, his first one worked out beautifully. By the 18th, some 52,000 had left by rail. Another 18,000 simply took the money and walked out of town. That left just over 80,000 men who were still on the payroll but currently locked out of the works. But Gustav was ready for them, too. Spreading the word through pamphlets, the concern with Gustav's name at the top said that not only would they remain on the payroll, but that their sick leave and pensions were still intact. That was as long as there was stability. So, with a swish of his pen, those very men who could make trouble for Krupp were now on the front line of making sure there would be no trouble for Krupp. The Krupp police never had it so easy. So, the extra workers were gone. The remaining workers were docile. But what about the work? What about the concern? But Gustav, with the third of his hat trick of good ideas, came up with a slogan that reminded everyone, We make everything. Soon, on the floor room of the administrative building were all sorts of Krupp products, prices included, and not one of them was a weapon. Instead, there were spoons and forks, machines for textile and farming, crankshafts, cash registers, movie cameras, typewriters, sprinklers, surgical instruments, and motor scooters. No, these certainly were not as sexy as producing weapons of war, But they brought in revenue and kept the men busy. That's what mattered for now. And yet, this string of non-violent production could also not match the money that had been coming in. This depressed the Krupp accounting books and Gustav's mood. But the other arms manufacturers were doing the same thing. Schneider, Armstrong, and Vickers. They just didn't have the cloud of defeat and blame hanging over their heads. In theory, those very former arms dealers owed Krupp's some 250 million much-needed marks. But now was not the time to sound them out. Losers do not get to demand anything. But the Krupp's were not beaten. That could never be allowed to happen. Gustav continued to expand his gaze to other non-violent applications of Kruppstahl. And he found them. Many bridges within the country needed to be repaired or rebuilt. Why not steel bridges? The state railway system agreed. This they never would have agreed to for Alfred Krupp because he rubbed them all the wrong way and made everything personal. But Gustav was a diplomat after all. He charmed a yes and payment from that branch of the government. And he didn't stop there. The country's locomotives were in a bad way after the war, and Krupp would go on to make 2,000 locomotives for the fatherland. Of course, this would bring in money, slowly, over time. But things were starting to look better. But in this new normal, where normality was turned on its head, Gustav became a fireman, putting out troubles as they arose. Several of his senior engineers quit as they were no longer allowed to make cannon. Gustav smiled and said he understood. Professional pride and all. The truth was, as these men and a few board members were leaving, he quickly counted up the savings he would have in reduced salary output. But, as for not making any more cannon, the engineers who stayed and Gustav would be proved wrong. In an episode that was Stranger, than anything seen so far. While Gustav strove to keep Essen from imploding, the rest of Germany was doing just that, and if the head of Krupp thought he could keep the larger storm from affecting his not insignificant kingdom, he was sadly mistaken. January 10, 1920, saw Germany formally ratify the Versailles Treaty, known to the Germans as the Versailles Dicta, unilateral decree. Yet what choice did they have? To lose a war is one thing. To feel that shame is one thing. But to have the country's government, the newly risen Weimar Republic, endorse it was quite another. The last vestiges of civility disappeared. Three months and three days later, General von Lütwitz, the commanding officer of the military in Berlin, had his men instead of protecting the capital, seize it, calling for the end of the Republic, and in its stead would be the Imperial Chancellorship of Friedrich Wolfgang Kapp, an ultra-conservative. Some Germans cheered, others were horrified, many were shocked. Ebert, the Socialist Democratic President, wisely fled. He wanted to know where the army stood on this issue. He was to be disappointed in his hopefully white knight. The German army after the war, though reduced to 100,000 for policing duties, had spent their time organizing and arming the Freed Corps, bands of civilians and former soldiers, who were given the task of stamping out any fires the leftists tried to start. The army's head, General Hans von Seck in charge of the Weimar Army, simply stood still and let events go on. He was satisfied with the way things were working out in Berlin. But there was something more powerful than even the German army, and the love and respect the people had for it. The people themselves. The Social Democrat Ebert called for a general strike. And as William Manchester in his brilliant book about the Krupp family wrote, When Germans obey, they really obey. The next day, nothing worked, switched on or moved within the country. It only took a week of this to see that Kapp's imperial chancellery had come to an end. He dashed for Sweden. Though this political experiment was over in a week, seven days is a long time in politics, certainly when there are no communications. As no Allied or German troops were allowed in the Ruhr Valley, itself being a political hotbed, a group of left-leaning but anti-communists, known as the Red Soldiers League, gathered 70,000 men and some weapons and started out for Essen. Because of this League's political leanings, they would be met and resisted by local police and Freed Corps soldiers. The Red League soldiers, having more men and being better organized, won the first clash after killing more than 200 of their enemy. Nothing now stood in their way, so Essen was entered and seized, including the Concerns factories. On that same day, the U.S. Senate defeated the Versailles Treaty for the second time, just in case the Germans needed a reminder that they were truly on their own. Other nearby towns and cities went the same way as Essen. Soon, men were chosen as local leaders and independent republics were announced. President Ebert, now back in charge and back in Berlin, requested a special dispensation to allow German soldiers into the Ruhr to put down this revolt from the Entente Commission. Their response was gleeful silence. First, serves the Germans right, and second, France desired an independent republic in the area to serve as a buffer state. That it held Germany's main arms manufacturer was an added bonus. Yet, the new normal of German disregard for their superiors and for foreigners in general meant that the closest commander of the German army, General von Wader, ignored this silence and sent in men anyways. The rebellion was quickly eliminated. Each new republic was cut off from the others. The leaders of each one, along with their men, shot. The last battle was in Essen on Easter Sunday. Those of the Red League that were not killed outright were taken away. Their futures were assumed to be mere days. As the situation was calming down, the French, perhaps purposefully so, decided to find a lingering spark and throw gasoline on it. Using the excuse of the entry of regular German troops, French soldiers were sent into Essen, raised the French flag, and shot seven locals for speaking out. So, just in case the Germans were confused about who the real enemy was and where their revenge should be directed once they got their house in order, just received a non-too-gentle Reminder. Eight weeks later, in late May, the Allies were ready to deal with the concern. Colonel Leverett, a British officer in local charge, arrived to oversee the destruction of Krupp's war material-making abilities. Ever polite, the colonel softly said, "He was just here to oversee things. The crumpanier would do the work themselves, and Gustav would pay them for their time." Yet Leverett was. In a bit of a hurry. After this, he had to go to Kiel to oversee the sinking of Krupp's warships. But there was some confusion. There always is right before, during, and after any war. Yes, the workers would destroy a million tools used for war-making, 9,300 machines for weapons production, and clear 100,000 cubic yards of Krupp factories. That wasn't the problem. It was the number of guns to be destroyed. The number of experimental guns so listed by the French did not exist. Leverett's polite reply to this was, I'm sorry, orders are orders. Yet the guns didn't exist. Everything of that nature had long since disappeared and was probably hidden away or in the hands of the Freed Corps. Not that that bit of intelligence was going to be given to the colonel. Yet, that was okay. Leverett had come up with a solution. Proving that fact is indeed stranger than fiction. The colonel offered up the idea of the crumpineer first producing the guns needed to satisfy his superiors so they could then be destroyed. That way, the letter and spirit of the Allied Commission could be satisfied. So, the fires were lit up, the factories unlocked, and opened. The men got to work in what had to be the strangest period of their working lives. The guns were made and then destroyed. Only then were the works dismantled, but not all of it. The Dictate called for the production capability of Krupp to be halved. But in the end, this meant little in hurting the concern in the long run. The plans for these and other weapons still existed. The workers retained their knowledge, the vital minerals were still in the ground, and above all this, the Germans, already a hard-working people, now had a new reason to get out of bed each morning and head to what was left of the concern. Within a mere five years, the Krupp factories would be back to their 1914 production levels, and much of this was due to the Allies. Krupp would rebuild on the leveled sites and use this to bring his production tools and techniques up to the latest standards, standards worked out by Krupp engineers who had time to work on it. Yet all of this was too much for Gustav to observe personally. He had already sent his family to the Black Forest, to his Baden-Baden horse racing estate. For those that came to join them, they were entertained in such a way by Gustav, the diplomat, that many had to struggle to remember that there had been a war and that the Germans had lost. At the dinner on the last evening of the season, the silverware around the table wasn't silver. It was solid gold. Clearly, the Krupp family was still affluent and in charge of their little world. And these tableware items should have informed anyone who had the sense to see that Krupps would one day be able to back up with their peculiar products the Germans' desire for revenge. Greetings, members uh, from Central Virginia. So, just a quick note you've probably done this already, but I just want to make sure because you're members and I wanted to give you the extra notice. And again, Thank you so much for supporting the show. Um, Don't forget to enter into the latest Harry's giveaway. So just send me an email to www.iipodcast at gmail.com and just put I love Harry's in the subject line. And that way when I do the drawing probably late this week, I'll make sure your name is in there. And if you're already in there once, then you'll be in there again. So um, good luck to everyone. Again, thank you for supporting the show. And I will see you as soon as I can with the next regular and membership episodes.